We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Well, good morning. Today is Thursday, March 9th, and uh, this is potentially going to be the best show we've had so far. And it's because the topic is the one that I've been shouting from the rooftops on over the last couple of months. And I uh, got opened up another door to bring in the man that uh, I want to introduce to everybody today. So before we get started, uh, my name is Scott Shera. I am Grace's dad. I'm here because Grace was murdered in a hospital on October 13th of 2021. Uh, that event empowered me to become a full-time advocate in our Lord's Army. And so I'm going to, as I always do, I talk about Grace for a bit. And uh, this time, you know, I'm going to share how she always brought in her love of God to things. And then you, if you've been watching the program for a while, you know, I always close with the gospel message, but this time we're going to still close with the gospel message, but it's going to be in a very unique video. And it ties back to how Grace's uh, life was and what it was like to have an angel like her in our life. So Don, can you bring in the picture of Grace? All right. So this is my favorite picture of Grace and she changed my perspective in so many ways. But the day, this day, she changed my perspective on something that I had been doing for years before, which is I was killing dandelions. So you got this lawn and you got to have this picture perfect lawn. Well, you know, when I saw this bouquet and this is by far, enough, there's a lot of cool pictures of Grace, but this is my favorite. So she's out picking this bouquet for mom. And when I saw it, I thought, oh, my gosh. I, I will never kill another dandelion because they're just a special flower. And my, my little buddy, uh, my little, my little buddy just, just changed my perspective. And, you know, that is a very simple way, but I mean, she did it in a lot of ways. So I'll share the next one. So this is a letter, Don, you can bring up this letter. So you'll see, this is from a young man by the name of Levi Harper. He wrote this to my wife, Cindy and I, uh, after Grace passed away, and you just you just look at what his words are, and you know that is the impact. His words are the impact that um, Grace had on everybody that she met. Grace had it. You know, everybody knows her sense of humor from watching what I've been sharing. So, you know, we got on this idea, her and I, on book titles, and so she heard the joke. Um, Have you read the book Under the Bleachers? And so then the person who told her the joke the first time, he said, no, I haven't heard about that book. So would you like to know who it was written by? And, and so it was written by Seymour Butts. So then Grace and I start bantering this around and we came up with about 30 different ones. So one of the ones that was funny that we came up with that night after she heard that one is, uh, have you read the book, How to Shave Your Underarms? And so you want to know who it's written by? It's, it's written by Harry Pitts. So then Grace always had this way to tie back to, to God. I mean, those of you who've been watching, you know, she called me earthly dad. She called my wife earth, earthly mom. You know, who does that? Uh, it's somebody that's close to God and they know what's going on. And Grace did. I mean, she knew what, what the situation was. So this one that Donald put in afterward, I have it up on my screen that I'm looking at now. She wrote her own book title as a little note to mom. She said, have you read the book 
love your mom, known as earthly mom and Jesus Christ, question mark. I love them both, parentheses, written by your daughter, Grace Emily. So that was that was my that was my little buddy live right there. All right, I'm going to go back to uh, what we're going to talk about. So uh, today I've got uh, uh, the guest by the name of Ron Panzer, and you know those who've been watching know I've had guests on that are you know they're well known in this medical freedom movement. You know Dell, uh, Stu Peters, uh, Mickey Willis. Uh, Dr. Artis, but Ron Panzer is not known like these guys, but he has been in this fight longer than all of them. And he, he's been screaming this warning from the rooftops for a very, very long time. And so what we titled, Ron and I talked uh, uh, last week, and he he really became a door that opened up. And how that happened is a couple of different people reached out to me when they saw me speaking out on on euthanasia and said, have you heard of Ron Panzer? And I said, no, I haven't. And, you know, enough people do that. I think, okay, is God asking me to contact him? So I thought I'm going to contact him. And as God would have it, we had a cancellation on the show this week. And so I was able to bring Ron in. So it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's quite a miracle. So um, Don, can you bring Ron in right now? Hi, Ron. Hi. So I saw, um, which is just perfect timing for today. I saw, I took a walk before I left this morning and saw two Robins outside. So Ron is from Michigan and lower Michigan, right? Yes. Southwest. Have you seen, have you seen any, seen any Robins yet? Oh yeah. The Robins are here. Yeah, yeah they are. Okay. Well, I saw my first pair this morning, so that was, <laughs> it was pretty neat. So, I mean, we have a pretty, it's, you know, this isn't a spring like topic we're going to be talking about, but, um, it was just kind of a neat thing to remind us that God's still in charge. So what I want to do, I'm going to read a, a um, bio of Ron because it's important that people understand his background. Then I'm going to give a fairly long monologue before I dive in with Ron. And the reason is, is because I want people to see what he is going to talk about live in real time. And that's that's where I want to give this monologue. So Ron sent me a very nice bio. I pared it down a bit with the high points. I'm just going to read this so everybody can get a grip as to um, how, how big this man's name is and his work in this euthanasia agenda. So Ron Panzer, he's a graduate of Syracuse University. He's a pro-life nurse, patient advocate, and whistleblower who has exposed violations of the standards of care within hospice and other medical facilities, and has served as a consultant on hospice for thousands of families, patients, and staff from all over the nation. Ron is the founder and former president of the now disbanded Hospice Patients Alliance, a charitable nonprofit patient advocacy organization that fought for 22 years from 1998 to 2020 to, and this is really important, to preserve the original pro-life mission of modern hospice envisioned by physicians Dame Cicely Saunders, and this is her quote, to care for those facing death, relieving their suffering and allow for the natural death in its own timing. So that's a big deal, that's the standard, and we have wavered from that standard. So going on with, with Ron's bio, Ron has been on the front line saving thousands of lives and the sanctity of life 
and respect for the individual's patient rights was affirmed through his advocacy. Ron affirms the basic dictum of medicine, which is to do no harm. His comments on hospice have been quoted in numerous news outlets and national newspapers. Ron is also an author and has made all of his articles in full-length books available as eBooks or web files for those who request a copy. You're gonna see a number of links in the show notes that Ron's provided. So once you see what he has to say, I encourage you to dig in and, and read more. So you'll get those things in the show notes. So um, what I wanna talk about is an introduction then. So Grace's last day on earth was October 13th of 2021. Last April is when I realized she was murdered. That realization led to a deep dive into the Holocaust and the banality of evil. That research led into the culture of death and how the cabal is implementing their goal. Uh, before COVID, there were 62 million Americans on Medicare and Medicaid. That number is now 100 million. Before COVID, the excuse used to euthanize was financial. That's what they tried to get us to buy into because those population groups, the Medicare and Medicaid population groups accounted for 39% of the annual federal budget. So they used programming to get us to believe in collectivism versus individualism under the guise of, we need to take care of these population groups financially. This agenda is not about finances or collectivism. It's is about population reduction. The goal is facilitated first by creating a culture and that culture is implemented with the love of money. The culture of death has been programmed into doctors and nurses to kill patients. We have become part of a cult that worships the medical profession. So we cannot believe they would do things to kill us. What does that look like? Just this week, I was on the phone with a producer of a show that is completely awake. And I asked her, she's young. I said, if you went into a hospital, what would you do? What does that look like to you? She was completely clueless. So she is totally up on the jab. She knows it's a bioweapon, but she was clueless that the hospitals were killing. She just said, well, you walk in and you you basically, you know, you sign in and, and then you just follow what the doctor says. You know, you you end up trusting the doctor. And that's why I'm calling this a cult of bowing down to the medical profession because we just assume the doctor's following the Hippocratic Oath. And, and we've been programmed to believe that that's true. Well, it hasn't been true for a long time. COVID exposed this for me. And I see this on a lot bigger picture now, which is why Ron is here. So I wanna give you an example. This came yesterday. So those of you who have been following Grace's story know we have um, a place on the website for people to submit their stories. And we have about 85 of them posted now on the website. This one came in yesterday. So this is a very long story. I'm just gonna read the last two paragraphs of what the lady wrote. So her mom was murdered on December 16th of 2021. And the story parallels Grace's in so many ways, but this is the last, this is the last two paragraphs I'm gonna read. So she wrote, escaping from the hospital colon, four of her children, this is the mom, my, her siblings, uh, mom's children, fought their way past the front door guards to be with her after staff had scared us into thinking she might die in the process of transfer. At this point, they're realizing they wanna get her out. And so they agreed to hospice care. 
she was made NPO, which means they already said she can't have any food or water as soon as they arranged for hospice. She wasn't released for almost 21 hours and no one told us they were once again starving and dehydrating our mother. She was dehydrated, significantly weakened, and being refused an ice chip by a nurse who said simply, quote, it's the protocol when they're going home, end quote. She denied a dying woman's and her children's request for a single ice chip and then had the gall to delay her departure by stepping between her and transportation staff to put her face in our mother's and say it was a privilege to take care of her. According to the medical records, they gave her morphine and Ativan before her transfer, denying her the opportunity to enjoy a last meal at home. God had his hands on her mom and family, and we got her home the afternoon of December 15. She passed on to our father in heaven on December 16, surrounded by her family in her peace of her own home. We know she is at peace with our father. We pray for protection for those still facing this evil and those trying to heal from it. We must connect the dots. The Provider Relief Fund is funding murder and it needs to be ended. According to some nurses, Dignity Health is the number five recipient of the COVID Provider Relief Fund in the country. Dignity Health is the uh, hospital the mom died at, or she was treated at, she didn't die there, she died at home. In what, some, in what were some of my mom's final words, she described what is transpiring as, quote, evil, evil evil, end quote. Each time these doctors and nurses kill a patient, they're, they're searing their consciences. They have a choice. That's how sin works. Today, we are going to invest the balance of the, this time to uncover how we got here, what is happening in real time to prove the skeptics that the alarm we are sounding is real and then talk about a path out of this nightmare. Uh, so Don, I wanna jump in with uh, that short clip. This just came out two days ago, this clip, and I would like to get Ron's comment on it then. I said it then, I'll say it now. The hospital was covering up. Most of the hospitals I've worked at they strongly suspected that there were deaths associated with me. Why do you think they didn't take it further? I think that they were worried about the publicity. If protecting human life wasn't a priority for them, it's impossible to guess how low someone could stoop to protect their financial interest and the interest of the hospital. So there's no regard for human life. That's the basis for all these murders. So Ron, you've said we are all being targeted. I talked with your friend Julie from halovoice.org on Monday. She told me the story about how you saved her life in the fall of 2021. She had been yes. given remdesivir and you told her to get out of the hospital. So right. why did you give her that advice? Well, Remdesivir, which is part of the CDC protocol for treating COVID, um, was an experimental drug in Africa for Ebola. And it was one of four drugs that were being tested 
and the study uh, progressed just for a short time and they very quickly discovered that remdesivir was harming the kidneys and the liver of the patients and they actually stopped using remdesivir in that study so it was precluded it was so bad that they didn't even continue to use it the fact that they brought remdesivir back to be used here is just mind-boggling because it was already known to be lethal uh, for many uh, people, a high percentage of patients. And basically they were repurposing a drug so they could make money on the research of developing remdesivir. But it was obviously known to those who used it and proposed it that it would kill thousands and, and perhaps millions of patients around the world. So uh, when I found out she was in the hospital, um, I knew the CDC protocol was to deny the proper treatments, the effective treatments that would help people. And they would uh, not provide full hydration and uh, basically give harmful medications while preventing helpful medications. And that if she stayed in the hospital, she would end up dead. There was no question in my mind. So I talked with her and I just felt overwhelmed with concern for her. And uh, she listened and she's alive today because she walked out against medical advice. Um, and then uh, it was like the middle of the night and she had to find a pharmacy that was open and she got her uh, certain high dose uh, vitamin C, D, zinc, and, and quercetin and some other things. And she recovered. Uh, we, we, I actually ordered some things to be sent to her, um, and she took those. And then also uh, got in touch with a physician to follow her case and guide her when she got back to Texas. Uh, yeah, what's interesting? She was in on vacation in Wisconsin. Yes. And she you know, she family. just she, she just walks out in the middle of the night based on your advice and that saved her life and then she she ends up finding a hotel and then connects with her husband to I mean it just it's it's fantastic but that's that is the the um strength that we need right now if you're interested in saving people's lives or you're saving your own life first don't don't go in the hospital but if you aren't awake like she wasn't awake to what they were doing you work woke her up live and she chose to listen and she's alive today right uh the problem is sometimes people don't believe uh the reality that is out there they're not radicalized. If your eyes are open, you become a radical. You see things as they are, which is quite different from the illusion that is promoted. And people believe in the goodness of all the healthcare workers. And right. uh, actually, many have not ever been educated or taught about the sanctity of life, affirming life, um, reverence for life, or God. And uh, decades ago, they did. They, they were taught, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath and so on. But nowadays, uh, they are not. It goes back quite a ways. And the indoctrination was gradual over time. And uh, we can get into that if you want. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna, we'll, we'll do that next. So I yeah. don't know if I told everybody what the title of the show is today. I'm gonna do that now. And then that's a good segue into our next uh, topic, which is the longest one. So the title is Stealth Youth in Asia, How Hospice 
was given a license to kill in the current culture of death. So what I want to do, this is going to be the lion's share of our discussion is about, you know, how this took place. So one of your books has the title Stealth Euthanasia. Um, and I'm going to have you explain that title and how we got from the original uh, sound idea of hospice care to the euthanasia agenda today. So we're going to do that. Uh, first, I'm going to just introduce that with a short clip that you had from an interview you did in 2016. And then I'm going to have Don, after that clip, I'll call for two other chain of event handouts that will be in the show notes so that people can look this stuff up after you're done connecting the dots. So Don, can you play that clip first? Has anyone ever told you why? that they, these people are not being prepared? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, within a, in, a, within, in, a, in a medical setting. Yeah, in a way, the, the reason uh, that these people are being uh, killed medically is the same reason the public is not being told, is that the, uh, the values that guided healthcare and society the ethics of life have been abandoned um, for a secular bioethics that was uh, instituted in 1978 through the Belmont Report, uh, codified into law in the United States, and in other nations similar uh, laws were affected, um, where the respect for the sanctity of life was abandoned, the pledge to do no harm was abandoned, and uh, other principles were adopted that were utilitarian, that uh, placed the good of society at the expense of the individual uh, over the, uh, the welfare of the individual patient so that experiments might be done that might harm an individual uh, for the goal of uh, helping society. These kinds of thoughts or ways of thinking uh, rationales are very similar to what was uh, employed by the Nazis. So we have like, yeah. we we have left we have left our moral foundations, and the doctors, the nurses, the lawyers, the judges are educated into a secular bioethics. Okay, Don, will you bring up the culture of death collaboration so everybody can see this one, and then. Uh, next, we're not going to zero in on this now. I just want people to know that this is available in the show notes. And then, Ron, as you're describing how we started and how we got here, if you want to call on this document or the other one, you can just ask Don to do that. But, you know, you know this well enough. You probably don't need to do it. Then the other one is the Stealth Euthanasia Covert Operations. Can you bring that one up? Uh, so Ron had put this one together. So those both of these are going to be in the show notes. And, you know, so now, Ron, you know, we've got this title of your book, Stealth Euth Euthanasia, uh, you know, that that couple minute clip introducing what's going on. So I just I would like you to just have the floor and connect the dots for people so they can see the chain of events and how long this is going on, has been going on so they can believe we are here because this was set up. And so that's why we're here right now. So go ahead, Ron. Right. Well, stealth means hidden or undeclared, and euthanasia is intentional medical killing. So what's going on with stealth euthanasia is you have 
doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and any other staff in a healthcare setting, whether in the hospital, the hospice, or even the, in the patient's own home, intending to cause death. And there are dozens and dozens of ways of doing that. Um, <clears throat> but this started uh, way back, uh, probably thousands of years ago, there, the Hippocratic Oath would not exist to say do no harm, warning doctors not to do no harm, unless there were doctors who were doing harm. And the Hippocratic Oath also says not to give uh, an abortifacient pessary for the woman to create an abortion or to cause death, which means the practice of euthanasia uh, happened in the past and continues because there's always been a divide between those who have reverence for God and reverence for life and their patients and those who do not, the utilitarians, the secular, the materialistic people. So um, in more recent time, in 1938, you have the Euthanasia Society of America uh, being formed, which actually directly over time affected hospice today. Um, the first hospice in a modern sense was in London in 1967, created by Dame Cicely Saunders. Uh, she was at first a nurse and then a social worker. Um, she had back pain, so she couldn't do the nursing anymore. And people told her, nobody's gonna listen to you about good end of life care unless you become a doctor. Uh, so she became a, a medical doctor and then uh, created the hospice in 1967. And as word spread of what she was doing, because pain control was not very well done before that, and uh, she actually improved the pain control. And in London at that time, early years, they used heroin. And that may sound shocking, but heroin is diacetylmorphine. I don't know if you can see that. Diacetylmorphine. And morphine is almost exactly the same. So it's a very good pain medication, heroin, and uh, given in the right dose. See, even if something is lethal in a high dose, it could be very beneficial in a tiny dose, and that's what they were doing. So as soon as heroin uh, comes into the body, it's changed into morphine. So in the United States, they ended up using morphine and not heroin. Um, and in 1974, Florence Walt, who was a master's degree nurse uh, practitioner, she was the Dean of Nursing at Yale University Nursing School. Um, she decided to create the Connecticut Hospice, one of the first hospices in America. There were others created around the same time, but that's considered the first. And she, although she was very interested in end-of-life care, obviously, um, she had a different approach. She was not pro-life. Uh, Dr. Cicely Saunders was a Christian, and she almost created a religious order to do hospice, but she decided to make it ecumenical 
uh, approach to anyone and uh, didn't require people to be Christians to work there. But they would pray with the patients in the morning and afternoon if the patients wished. And it was completely uh, filled with reverence for life. Uh, Florence Waldo was secular and uh, she subscribed to the uh, the idea that euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, even at that time, she was saying, should be approved for those patients who are suffering physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and economically. So you, when you get to euthanasia, you, you're saying a person can be killed for all those reasons. And she included economic reasons. So you have to understand the people today who follow this same secular bioethics, they believe patients can be killed for economic reasons. They won't come out and tell you as clearly as she did. Uh, you know, in the case of your mother, your wife, your child, but they're thinking that as they're dealing with your loved one in the bed who's being cared for, these doctors, nurses, they're educated to think like that if they're not. Uh, full of reverence for life, and many are of that uh, mindset. So they're so, they're pro, they're programmed with that mentality. So this was in nineteen. What year was this? Seventy eight. Nineteen seventy four. She started the hospice, um, but over time, what I want to get to, I'm going to bring back, uh, get back to the hospice part here. But going back to the Euthanasia Society of America, it changed its name to the Society for the right to die because they realized the euthanasia proponents, they wanted to legalize medical killing. They realized the public couldn't accept the idea of medical killing outright. So they changed it. They said, well, you have to have the right to this. You have to have the right to that. You have to have the right to die with dignity. So the right to die, well, everyone dies. What's the right to die? They're talking about the right to be medically killed if you want it, uh, physician-assisted suicide, or the right to die if you're suffering so bad, the doctor decides that your life is better off ended. And they actually think that way, that you're suffering, I'm gonna do you a favor by killing you. That's how they think. So it changed its name again to the uh, National, uh, well, the National Council for Death and Dying, and then choice in dying. And choice in dying is very significant because choice in dying started promoting all these living wills, advanced directives, and everybody today accepts the idea of an advanced directive. But Lewis Kuttner was part of this um, movement to get the living will as an ink, and he said this in the uh, Indiana Law Review, I believe it was, He said, it's an incremental step to the legalization of euthanasia, the living will. So people were taught, oh, this is for your own good. We're going to honor your wishes about how you want to be cared for. But it's always a one-way street. You know, back in 93 with the Clintons, they had the Patient Self-Determination Act. And they said, well, you can determine how you're going to be cared for. We're going to respect your right, your thoughts, you're going to self-determine your care. 
but it's only if you want to withdraw care, withhold care, end care. But it's never if you say, I want to be cared for, I want to get this treatment. Well, then they have their uh, ethics committees at the hospitals to say, no, we've got uh, five doctors sitting there and two lawyers and the hospital administrator and a social worker all there working against you to say, no, we're not approving it. And then you've got the family member saying, please provide this treatment. It will save my loved one's life. And they say no, because they're thinking you're better, the patient is better off dead. So Choice in Dying started promoting the living wills and the advanced directives. And then what's very important for people to realize is that Choice in Dying, which was the renamed Euthanasia Society of America, joined with a hospice lobbying group, Partnership for Caring. They don't have to remember all the names. The most important thing is that the formerly named Euthanasia Society joined with hospice, one of the most powerful lobbying groups, Partnership for Caring, um, in 1998 to 2001, they did this transition. But Choice in Dying stopped existing. It was merged into Partnership for Caring. So the Euthanasia Society of America was openly advocating for euthanasia. And then where did it go? It merged with the hospice lobbying group, the tainted hospice lobbying group not the life-affirming hospice, okay? And then uh, it merged with another hospice lobbying group, Last Acts, to become Last Acts Partnership. No mention of Euthanasia Society. And then Last Acts Partnership in 2004 was absorbed by what? The National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, the only, the major hospice lobbying group in the United States. And not only is it a lobbying group, the insurance companies require all the hospices that they pay for hospice care to be certified by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization oh, that is the successor legally. Legally, they took over Last Act's partnership and all rights. It's on their own website. I have that. So, so in the, order for the hospice facilities to get paid, they have to follow the directives of the insurance company. That's right. And they have to therefore follow that they have to be certified. Their, their trainers of the staff go to the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization for training. So they get together, they, they hobnob, you know, they, they're of the same mindset. And if you refuse, and I know some hospice administrators that were pro-life and were being forced to join the National Hospice Organization, they didn't want to, okay. Um, and I've seen the documents, for example, Blue Cross Blue Shield in Pennsylvania was where this happened. Um, they said, you have to be a member of this terrible organization that is tainted hospice, not pro-life hospice. And so when people say hospice is wonderful, hospice is loving, yes, it is if 
its life-affirming original hospice. And many staff, uh, there are people, nurses, even doctors who are Christians, who are filled with reverence for life. They go into the hospice thinking it's what's advertised on TV. But once they get into the actual organization, the agency, they're told you have to do things this way. And if they start fighting for the life of the patient, then they're considered a troublemaker. Why are you, you know, going against your case manager or the doctor's orders? Well, it doesn't take all the staff to be evil to kill a patient. It only takes one. Why? Because let's say there's all the doctors have good orders. They're appropriate for pain uh, management for the patient, or they don't have sedatives that are uh, more than what is necessary if the patient is agitated. You know, these medications, they're not all bad or all good. They depend on the patient's clinical condition and the right dose at the right time for the right patient. Everybody knows this in healthcare. So one doctor comes along and says, we're increasing the opioid, the morphine, the fentanyl, whatever, to a higher dose because the patient's in pain. Well, that may be appropriate, but if the dose is more than what's needed of the pain medication or the sedative, then the patient is put into a uh, medically induced coma. They're asleep, they look very peaceful, but they are being sedated and the effects of an opioid, their central nervous system depressants, they decrease the awareness of the patient, they put them to sleep, they uh, decrease the blood pressure, they slow the heart, they slow the breathing. And if you give too much, they stop the breathing. So when people read in the newspaper about people using recreational drugs, or there were 100,000 fentanyl deaths this year in America, those are recreational uh, disasters of using misusing these drugs. But fentanyl could be a very good pain medication, and it is in a tiny dose. We dose it in micrograms, a thousand times smaller than morphine, which is milligrams. So in the appropriate dose, it's fine. But if you give more than what's needed, you are pushing the patient down, tending towards death. So there's dozens of ways of tending, intending the patient's tendency towards death. So you can sedate them, you can over-medicate them with an opioid, you can decrease their fluid, the water that they take in. If they are in a uh, coma, they're sleeping, or even if just drowsy, you sedate them enough that they're drowsy, then they'll start choking if you give them a glass of water. And then they'll say, oh, you can't drink because you're, you have a swallowing problem. So then they make them, like you said, NPO, nothing by mouth. So the patient dehydrates, the blood fluid volume in their circulatory system decreases. Eventually there's not enough liquid in the circulatory system for the heart to pump to all parts of the body. The circulatory system collapses and they die from dehydration. Or the pain medication, the opioids, given when not necessary, stop the breathing completely. Simply it can do that.
that's what happens with these fentanyl deaths. They just breathe it in or they take it in somehow and they, they die from the opioid effect. Every package insert for every opioid medication says can cause respiratory depression and even death if given in too high a dose. Everyone knows that, uh, or they should know it. Um, but there are uh, hospice staff who are so ignorant that, that they don't know it, or they intend, they do know it and they intend that. So when they stealth euthanasia, they are doing these things, but not recording that they're doing it. So it's hidden, undeclared. Their charting will say in the medical record, patient had extreme pain, therefore pain med uh, got order from doctor to increase pain medication by such and such. And then every nurse that comes on after, if the patient is sedated and sleeping, doesn't know that the pain medication was falsely increased or fraudulently increased. Or the sedative, they could say patient is terribly agitated. We increase the Ativan or whatever other sedative. So uh, I've spoken to literally thousands over a couple, a few decades here, people just like you, whose loved one was killed in exactly this way or dozens of other ways. Um, and even doctors, doctors have called me whose loved ones have been killed. They were the type that believed in the Hippocratic Oath, could never imagine that a doctor or a nurse could kill someone or intend. And if they weren't a hospice doctor, they wouldn't know. They would trust the hospice doctor or nurse and say, well, you're the experts. Do what you think is best to keep my loved one comfortable. They have this terminal illness. But just because you go into hospice doesn't mean you, you say, oh, I've got cancer, therefore kill me right away. No, they want to live, as Dr. Cicely Saunders said, live a natural life until death takes you or God takes you naturally um, and live as fully as you can until that time. That's what people want. That's what's being sold in all the ads for hospice. Uh, we, we affirm life. No, they, they really don't. Today, probably 99.9% .9 of the hospices, at some time, they're killing patients uh, and some staff are intending it or some staff are completely uh, oblivious to what's really going on. And they become very offended if you say this is happening because the ones who don't know it they say, well, I didn't do that. I don't do that when I'm there. I'm providing good care. But as I explained, they may not know what the other person did to increase the dose or to do something that's not recommended. And another method is, because I uh, now I'm working with uh, Medicare patients. We do visit, uh, visit nursing. And you have patients who have acute conditions. They, they're coming out of the hospital. They're very ill with pneumonia or strokes, heart attacks, whatever. And we have all these certain medications that save their lives and keep them stable. So what happens in the misuse of hospice and palliative medicine is to withhold the medications that stabilize the patients. They'll say, you're in hospice, we're discontinuing these medications and we're starting these. 
And the family says, I don't understand. Why would you stop them? Well, they just do it because they have the power. Once the patient's admitted into hospice, they're in control. They're the primary caregiver or uh, provider agency. So they stop the medications and then the patient has acute heart, respiratory, kidney, diabetic uh, incidences, and they destabilize the patient and then say, well, they're actively dying or they're pre-actively dying, which are different designations. Actively dying is when a patient is probably around three days before they're gonna die. There are certain signs of active dying that occur naturally. But here's the thing, a patient who is overdosed with morphine or any opi opioid will have the slowing of the breathing, the sleeping more, the uh, blood pressure dropping, and many other signs. All of these are signs of active dying. So the medication is causing the patient to tend towards death, which are signs of active dying. The staff come to the family and say they're actively dying, get prepared for death because see, see what's happening. But it's, well, this is exactly what you're explaining. I want to make the quantum leap to nursing homes and hospitals here, but you know, Grace died in a hospital. And this is what you are describing is exactly how she was murdered in the hospital. And there was no excuse for it. I mean, the morning of her last day, the doctor told us how great of a day Grace had. Let's work on nutrition. And then right, they exactly. gave her Presidex, lorazepam, and morphine. Right. And you know, they created that situation to, to murder her. I mean, it's, right. it's just, you know, and you've done, you really have done a great job explaining how this is stealth. And so they've created this culture of death. I, I get asked this a lot in interviews that I'm on and I don't have your, your um, experience to answer it. So I just answer it from what's on my heart. But so what are the, so some of these people are innocent. Okay, but yes. some of them are not. Okay, right. they're so closer. we call them closers. They, they're the killers. They intend death. You could have 12 people who are really good and then one person who's a closer and the administration sends that one in, finish this patient off. Um, and so the, actually, closer, the closer is not negligent. The closer knows what they're doing. They are an active conscious murderer working within the system and the system we, gives them cover the system essentially gives them cover for the murder then right they have the license to kill but they do it in a way that's disguised now if this happened in a hospital um, where a nurse was giving um, uh, arsenic or something and they inject the patient with arsenic you know the psycho nurse killer. There have been some stories like that people hear about from time to time. They're going to arrest that guy. Okay. Sure. This, right. the, the, these are accepted drugs that uh, can help a patient, but they can, in a disguised way, cause death. Okay. So um, you have to, within hospice, part of the um, hospice is a business. Okay. And if you look at it as a business model, when the Medicare hospice benefit was created in the early 1980s, um, they said uh, the patients have to have a six month 
prognosis that they would die within six months and statistically and nobody can really predict that exactly sometimes there's a patient who uh, looks like they're actively dying and you have all the everything you would think that they're dying within an hour or the next day and sometimes miraculous miraculously they live and i know of cases where uh, jesus appeared to one patient i took care of who everybody thought he was going to die and then uh several and i didn't go back and uh several months later i had to dress a wound on a hospice patient and i was saying this address this name this seems familiar and as i got closer i said oh this is where that patient was maybe it's the patient's wife and then i, I looked and said no it's the patient how can that be and so i said joe how how do you how come you're here we all thought you were going to die and he said i looked out the window they had a big picture window overlooking a lake and he said i saw the face of jesus and after that i got better and he was alive uh, several months later and uh, that's a miracle you know there are many stories that hospice people can tell you but someone can look like they're dying and they don't die and somebody could look like they're not dying and and they do die so you have the closers um but back to the six month rule okay the reimbursement for hospice has traditionally been for decades that uh the average payment for the routine home care rate times six months is what's called the cap okay so okay. there's an average cap and it's technical uh formula for this but the, all you really need to understand is that the average payment for any hospice payment that the government wants to give is take the routine home care rate for that area multiply it by six months of days okay all the days in six months and you'll get the average cap that is paid out to the hospice for the patient after six months then the hospice on if they are tending for more patients on average to live longer than six months then they're going to be losing money so in many cases that we've heard about after six months they send in the closer or somehow the patient dies right after six months but it doesn't mean every patient is going to be killed after six months it means that on average the hospice administrators are looking at this they want to keep the average reimbursement at least uh, above or near that uh, cap amount, and hopefully for them, better than that. So there might be patients who live two weeks and uh, they're getting full payment, um, but when the patients live longer, uh, then they could be losing money. The other thing is they're not gonna kill everybody or a, lar a large percentage of their patients in hospice because then everybody's going to know, you know, of the naive people out there, they're going to think, oh, everybody who goes to this hospice is killed within two weeks or something or whatever. If they it, can it, find it too easily. Yeah, they find right. it too easily. So they have to disguise what they're doing and they have to give really good care to some patients so that they get reviews, people saying, oh, yeah, I went into such and such hospice and they treated me great. So then other people go in. So.
They don't Wait. kill everybody. And yeah. also people question and say, well, if it's a business, why would they kill their own patient? Well, I explain on the one hand, they don't want to have patients that are going beyond this six month uh, cap amount. Uh, the other is they have a never ending stream of patients. If they were short on census, meaning they didn't have enough patients for this, the average staff, what they can handle, um, they wouldn't be killing their patients. So if there's a lull in referrals to the hospice, they're going to tend to not kill their patients. Okay, so it, it comes down to business. Now, when it comes to the hospitals, people who are not nurses and doctors don't understand this. Okay, so there is continuing education for all the nurses every two years or three years, depending on the state, they have different rules. But what the, uh, I call them the stakeholders or the people behind the euthanasia movement, they have mandated, they, they get into the, the state nursing boards and they're very liberal, the state liberal, uh, nursing boards in general. And they have mandated pain management courses for all nurses every time they get certified every two years over and over and over again pain management pain management pain management and who is doing the pain management the hospice people or people who are palliative uh, nurse practitioners for the nurses and also doctors are uh, encouraged in many cases required to take uh, pain management or palliative medicine and it, even though it didn't exist in the early years within the medical schools, now it's required palliative care medicine taught by those who are not life affirming doctors or nurses. So they're taught a brand of hospice or palliative medicine. Palliative medicine is managing symptoms, taking care of distressing symptoms. When you apply that at the end of life, the people who apply that is the hospice staff. So hospice and palliative medicine are two separate things, but palliative care could be pain management for a 40-year-old who had a, um, a hip replacement or a 60-year-old or something. So they're two separate things, but when they're perverted, they can cause death and they can easily be, be misused because you have medications that can easily cause sedation and death. So uh, when I see these um, states that are worried about uh, medications uh, that execute prisoners, you know, when there's a death sentence, they say, oh, they can't find the right medication. It's just mind boggling. But the reason they don't want to use these medications is because it would be obvious to the public that they're killing hundreds of thousands more with these medications, they can easily kill people with fentanyl. You know, if they wanted to kill a, a prisoner who has a death sentence, they could just give them the fentanyl that's killing everybody else who misuses it on the street. So what's the big deal? Why is it so difficult? You, you see what I'm saying? They're hiding. Deception goes along with the culture of death. And from the Garden of Eden, deception caused death. Every Every, everything that's caused, excuse me, everything that's called sin or going astray causes death. 
And you may not believe that whether it's gambling or alcohol or drugs or uh, infidelity or sexual uh, uh, sleeping around causing diseases, they all tend towards death. So uh, the morality that was given us by God tends towards life. Everything is affirming life and creation and more abundant life. It's a complete opposite of what they're pushing. And, and the entire healthcare system has been tainted because the it started through hospice and then spread throughout the entire healthcare system like a black dye you release in a, in a pool of water. It spreads everywhere, the poison. And the thinking of secular bioethics. Um, Professor Diane Irving is uh, one of the first graduates of Georgetown University um, in, uh, with a PhD in bioethics, but she's pro-life. And she says she has this useless degree. She realized she never realized uh, it was going to be misused. And if people go online, they can search wow. for an article called, called What is Bioethics by Dr. Irving. And they'll understand that the entire healthcare system was intentionally tainted by the Congress when they came out with the Belmont report, which you mentioned earlier, or I mentioned on the clip. Uh, you, you need to get into this right. because it's a shell game. The shell game is the principles. They have autonomy, beneficence, and justice, and informed consent. Those are the four principles that came out of the Belmont report as a result, as a reaction to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, the egregious experimentation on blacks. And they said, we have to find an ethical system that would stop that. Well, that was a fraud because the ethical system was the Judeo-Christian foundation for healthcare and the Hippocratic Oath. We already had that. Right. But the Congress created this new system, secular bioethics from the Belmont report, then mandated that all the medical schools doing or universities doing research on, uh, on embryos, they were doing all kinds of research. Any federally funded research had to apply the secular bioethics. And these principles are not what they sound. Autonomy, meaning self-direction is only if you want to withhold care. It's not if you say, I want care and I demand it, then everybody has to listen to you. They refuse to listen to you. They find a way to overcome your wishes. And beneficence, doing the good. It's not the good of the patient. It's the, good of, the greater good of society, just like the Nazis thought. Right. And so we can sacrifice the individual for the economic benefit of society. You're a useless eater. You're, you have Down syndrome. You have this or that. Uh, you're old. You're not pr contributing to society. Therefore, we think you're better off dead. You're using up scarce resources. So we can kill you for that reason or, or deny care or withhold care. And justice is not justice what's right for the patient. It's the just distribution of scarce medical resources and therefore we can withhold those. And informed consent, as we've seen, they violate informed consent all the time, right. even though it's the most central 
uh, thing that people think. I have the right to know what options are out there for my care. I have the right to know what drugs are going to do and what harm they could do. And so if you have a vaccine that's killing people, they're withholding that information from the people because they intend to kill people. And people don't believe it because they're not radicalized. Their eyes aren't open. Right. But they have to open their eyes because people are dying left and right. If you just look a little bit online, you can find this information. And the studies, the masks have never stopped the spread of a respiratory disease like the flu or COVID or whatever, because the virus is so small. The only way you would stop that is when you have that like a spacesuit within uh, its own air supply or if you're in a hospital room, it has all the air going out, exhaling out into the air, and you have your own air supply that's separate, then maybe you wouldn't get it. But even then, people get sick. Uh, so it's ridiculous. The, ma the masks don't work. The social distancing is, is totally ridiculous because anyone who knows chemistry, uh, Boyle's law, the molecules spread from a, a place of concentration all the way out so they're equally distributed in a room. The virus particles do the same thing. They spread infinitely. There's nothing to stop them. So six feet, even 25 feet, even 100 feet, the particles are going to spread. And the quarantining only works when you have the very first outbreak of any disease. So let's sure. say you've got Ebola in one town in Africa, if they quarantine that town, then it's not going to spread. Okay. But the moment one guy with Ebola goes to the city and it's spread among millions of people who fly to any part of the world, it could spread all over the world. Uh, a respiratory virus would be, you know, a better example, but um, some things don't spread so easily. <laughs> but the idea of quarantining people who are healthy is just insane. It's totally contrary to the standards and medically accepted practice. And anybody who's honest in healthcare would know that. Everything they did with COVID was wrong. And they, they withhold the treatments that were uh, effective. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to give the vaccine under emergency use authorization. And the only way to do that is if there is no other treatment and the treatments were already known. Even Dr. Fauci stated back when there was SARS-CoV-1 in the early 2000s, he said if he had a patient with SARS, he would give chloroquine. And it was found to be effective for those patients. And that was a much more lethal uh, variation of SARS at that time and MERS. And he knew it was effective. And then later on, he said, and hydroxychloroquine is basically the same as chloroquine. And, and he said, no, we're not going to give hydroxychloroquine. It's dangerous. Hydroxychloroquine and uh, these other uh, vitamin, high dose uh, supplements, vitamin C, vitamin D, ivermectin, they have been uh, used for billions of doses and billions of people over decades. Right. And they're on the World Health Organization list of safe medications. So when they said that these medications are not safe and you shouldn't give them, they were lying through their teeth 
as as bad as you could like because right. you know, absolute right absolute one hundred percent well known that they were uh, safe, and so they got their authorization for the bioweapon. It's a bioweapon that causes auto autoimmune attack and blood clotting and all the other things. There are poisons and and around the world millions are being harmed and and it is a crime against humanity what they're doing right now even in the hospitals the cdc protocol still exists to use remdesivir right. and withhold the effective treatment so they are still killing people we cannot recommend anyone go into a hospital if they have a respiratory disease like covid or flu uh they're well you can't say in every case but if they call it covid then they're going to use the cdc protocol yep. and they will die yep people are not are clueless that you know the public health emergency was re-upped on january 11th there's still a thousand people a day being murdered with covid as a diagnosis it's it's criminal as you said you know what's interesting to me about this is you you did a fantastic job describing the stealth methodology they use to get a cult to create a culture of death but now they're brazen about you know this stuff is you know you you discovered all of this because you cared and you researched now you look at so obamacare when we start with what you know the short term where this has been just out there obamacare was passed march 23rd of 2010. it was no uh, there was no surprise as to what the goal was ezekiel emmanuel uh who was he was the prime architect of Obamacare. He wrote, I mean, just take this quote. So, quote, services provided to individuals who are irreversibly prevented from being or becoming participating citizens are not basic and should not be guaranteed. So, I mean, this, this, you know, obviously that applies to hospice care. It applies to nursing homes. It applies to hospitals. Then it's, uh, uh, a doctor, you know, who um she had me on her program she sent me this clip don i'm gonna have you uh, pull up that obamacare provision because i want to show this uh, so this is you know straight out of obamacare i've got to just uh, so if you look at the third paragraph it says individuals or institutions refusing to participate in assisted suicide euthanasia or mercy killing may not be discriminated against by the government okay don you can take that off what so you look at that so they're telling us right through the law it's right there that that is what they're going to do euthanasia mercy killing and if you are one of the good ones that you're not going to participate in those type of things we're not going to discriminate against you I mean, this is this is literal insanity that we that's going on and then can you bring up the new death panel document don so this this was on on November 23rd. I brought this up before. November 23rd of 2022, the Health and Human Services Secretary unilaterally codified the death panels that everybody was fearful of Obamacare. He codified it into law. So I mean, obviously, when you listen to Ron, you know these death panels are already in existence. They don't need a law to do it. But I mean, he literally put it into law because he can when there's a public health emergency going on. I, you know, I I um I'm fit to be tied when I see this stuff, and it's hard for me to grasp. So, you know, what I what I I have basically two more questions for you, Ron, before we close. One is, do you ever, you know, you were screaming from the rooftops 
Um, so do you, you, when you see where we're at today, I mean, you obviously would have predicted this. Do you ever think to yourself, I told you this was going to happen? Um, when well, you think about this, so yes, then, then I want to go into course. how do we get out of this, but go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, it may be surprising to learn that the pro-life organizations have their head in the sand about what's going on. And I've been screaming about this for over two decades to them, people who are well-known in the pro-life community, pro-life leaders, for the most part, they will say, we're pro-life from cradle to grave, but we, um, when it comes to what they actually do, they're focused on abortion and stopping the babies from being killed. Right. Um, but as far as euthanasia, they are pro-hospice in many cases. And the, the reason this is, is very understandable to some extent. Originally, hospice was pro-life. And hospice presents itself as life-affirming, even though it's been tainted over decades now. So hospice movement and the euthanasia people did a runaround, uh, you know, uh, to deceive the public and even pro-life people, people who care about life. And so they would say hospice is the rightful alternative to euthanasia. So we get into the overt legalization of euthanasia and uh, physician-assisted suicide and the covert movement, okay? So I explained that the Euthanasia Society of America slipped into the hospice movement and became covert euthanasia movement. The yes. overt movement is still those trying to legalize medically assisted suicide, physician assisted suicide. And you hear about them, Hemlock Society and Com Compassion and Choices. These are people who are openly trying to legalize medical killing. But the covert movement, the, the pro-life leaders have not received the truth. They have resisted. I've tried, I've argued with them. They get, uh, they get mad at me and they've been wrong for, two de for decades. And now we're suffering because if the pro-life leaders had opened their eyes to what was really going on, how widespread it is, then we could have stopped this, I believe, but uh, they didn't. So people need to understand just within hospice, aside from COVID killing, uh, pre-2019, uh, okay, let's say 300,000 patients would be killed through stealth euthanasia every year in the United States. 300,000 graces, okay? How? Okay, let's imagine that in each facility, you have 10 of these per year, just 10, okay? So you have maybe um, 20,000 20, nursing homes, 5,000 hospitals, 5,000 hospices, that's 30,000 facilities just right there. And then multiply by 10, 30,000 times 10 is 300,000. And it's not hard to see that some nursing home patient, they would give the wrong medication or give too much of this or that, or, or just say, well, they're not doing well, we're gonna call in hospice or whatever, or in a hospital, just, just like it, it happened with so many 
we know so many cases. So th if you had uh, 100 plane crashes in a year, you would say, gee, we got to do something. But here you have 300,000 patients being hastened to death in a deceptive way. And they don't chart it. To falsely chart in a medical record is a felony, but they do it all the time. They're doing it all the time. Yep, that's yes, right. It's very common. I want to just uh, read two quotes from you, and then I'm going to, I want you to answer the question, how do we get out of this nightmare? And then we'll, we'll close up. So the two quotes are, why are, or we are only at the beginning of the worst of what is planned. So that's a quote from you. And then so many will look at the problem, but are not interested in the real solution, which is not passing laws, not solvable by Congress, but by each person who makes up society. So with those two quotes as a backdrop, how do we get out of this nightmare? Okay, well, we have to understand that what is happening is intentional and that the elite or those who can pull the strings of government and healthcare intend all the changes to every niche of society. Um, if you go to the United Nations website, um, they have the Agenda 30, uh, 2030, their goals for so-called sustainable development and so on, and the World Economic Forum website. And you look at the charts, they show they have carefully thought of every niche of society, right. and they are actively doing the opposite of what someone would do if you cared about life. They are tainting every sector of society intentionally. Right. And years ago, I, I can say I had a dream where I saw the national ship of state, basically. It was like glistening, beautiful white ocean liner. And it was uh, being driven uh, faster and faster. And uh, it was leaning to the left, to the left, to the left. So the, the side rail of this ocean liner was coming more and more to the water until it went under. They were intentionally driving the national ship of state under water. And I and some others were standing on the shore and I said, we have to help them. And there were many people died and it was intentional, but some people were still in the water and we went into the water a little bit and dragged them out of the water to save them. And that's what we have to do. We have to do what you're doing. Let people know you don't go into the hospital for COVID because they have the CDC protocol. Right. You have to inform people, but we have to restore the culture of life. We have to affirm the culture of life and virtues. There are virtues of uh, being brave and being honest and having reverence for God. If you you know, the Ten Commandments starts with, I am the Lord, your God. If you can just think of that, that God is before us at all times, you could never do the things they're doing. You would have reverence. You'd fall on your face. Just thinking of infinity and that being who is full of love and full of love for all creation and all the people. You could never do these things. So uh, I wrote the companion book to stealth euthanasia, which is restoring the culture of life, the ethics of life. We have to affirm the ethics of life, you know, informed consent. The precautionary principle 
in science and in ethics, we don't do something that may cause harm or is likely to cause harm. We refrain from doing that until we know it's safe. And that was never done with these vaccines, for example, and, yeah. and certain drugs. So uh, I encourage that anyone who's reading this, maybe you contact uh, Scott and he can forward the books to you because um, they're not online anymore, but you have your own group who are reading this or watching this. Um, in the Restoring the Culture of Life, I explain how to solve it. And I wrote that knowing that many people would die. I've had other uh, warnings, uh, messages, I would say, that are vivid visions, whatever you want to call them that we are in for a storm that is much worse than even today. And um, people have to prepare in every way they can, but also be open to guidance from above because uh, we are being targeted. The people are being targeted. And uh, the hate that people have for those who are of faith. Yes. So, there is hatred. The evil hates the light. And those who are evil-minded hate those who are of faith. And they hate that their evil is being exposed. And so they try to censor. The Hospice Patients Alliance was the major pro-life organization for 22 years. We were online from 1998. And Google, which is uh, truly... Um, uh, secular, transhumanist, evil in their thinking, they shut down our web visitorship basically overnight um, in 2017, just as they did to some other websites that were pro-life. And the email services can block our email as well because they set up their spam filters to censor pro-life content or certain words. They actually do this. People should be aware. They are trying to stop what you are doing, Scott, in every which way. They don't want the truth out there. They don't want people to know how to care for themselves, how to care from other, care for others, or how to prevent people from dying. So it's very valuable to get the information out there. And then, you know, when, when God rescues people, he, he doesn't always send down an angel ethereal to save people. He's gonna do it through you and me and, and we have to reach out in the circumstances that come to us and be brave and stand up and, and risk. We have to risk being human, being real, and not hiding who, who we are and what our beliefs are and being true to God. Yes. And that is how to start to, start to stop the madness because there is an evil madness spreading and people have to stop being anonymous because people are, you know, this whole idea of being anonymous on the internet, it creates cowardice. Absolutely. We have to be uh, there in our face with their evil. We, we need to stand up and say, uh, we care about life. We love God. We care about our patients. We're not going to allow them to be killed and we're gonna stop uh, complying with the culture of death. Absolutely. 
you know, you, you, you gave the principles, which this is a great segue into the, you know, I always close with the gospel message. This video is, um, it's got two, two messages, love and repentance. And I think, uh, that is the answer. I mean, then it requires action. And so Don, can you play this video then Ron, I'll come back to you. So this is our closing video. Você é parceiro de mãe, que
that's very hard for me to watch. Oh, that's, I, I, I sure pray these doctors and nurses repent. So, Ron, you've got the last word. Go ahead. Well, uh, I don't know what to say after that. Uh, we have to have heart. And if we open our hearts, then we'll find the way that we're supposed to walk. And uh, you can't say more than that. Thanks for thanks for being on today, Ron. It was really a blessing to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Please stand by for further details. We return you now to your regularly scheduled program.